Welcome to another episode of Employability Matters, a careers-related podcast where we dive into all topics associated with the world of work. We feature special guests sharing their personal career journey, as well as provide you with job search tips and relatable advice. Joining us today, we have Maxine Edgar, who is a wife, mother and nanny, as well as the founder of Bronze Ash Funerals. Maxine has an undisputed passion for people, both the living and the dead. As an independent celebrant and funeral arranger, she encourages families to be creative with their funeral ceremonies and states that it is one of the best jobs in the world. So let's get started. Well, welcome to another episode of Employability Matters, a podcast where we deep dive into the world of work and where my wonderful guests speak about their career journey and to give you all informal information, advice and guidance. And today I am so, so, so hyped. (laughs) I am so hyped. And you know, when people say that you shouldn't talk your business, but with me, I talk my business because you don't know who is going to be at the end of that conversation who will help you, right? So I was talking to one of my good friends, Amanda McCarthy. I'm going to shout her out today. And I was saying, I really do need some non-traditional type roles on my podcast. And she said, oh, I know somebody called Maxine Edgar. And I'm like, oh, Maxine, oh my gosh, I remember her. And fast forward, you're here on the podcast. So welcome, Maxine. Thank you, Sophia. And it's a pleasure to be here. Whenever I get the opportunity to talk about my work, I deem it a pleasure, um, especially to the community. So this is wonderful. Thank you. And thank you, Amanda. Mandy, yes. as I call her. Yes, Mandy. Yes, yes. Official <laughs> government name, Amanda, but we know her as Mandy. You know, yeah. I was so very intrigued about your role. And let's introduce yourself. Let's introduce yourself, your name, your business, and your current occupation. I'm founder of Bronze Ash Funeral Services. We're a funeral directors, funeral arrangers, and creators. I'm also a civil celebrant, which is more of a rarer position a civil celebrant will help her bereaved family organize just like you have a wedding planner organize the events because that's what it's become the event of a funeral that's awesome because I never ever heard of the word celebrant before ever seriously so when Amanda says yes Maxine is a celebrant I was like what is that because I've just known it as maybe a funeral director or a reverend that will you know moderate the services I never heard of the word celebrant so that is really new to me yeah well the celebrant stems from the root word of celebrate and the idea is that we celebrate the life of the deceased if I can give you a bit of background into the celebrant's role cremations are relatively new, if I can use that term, in terms of years um, in the country. Everybody was buried. When you go to graveyards, you see tombstones and so forth. And the clergy, the church has the order. The church has total control. But of late, people are saying, well, we want to take that control back. We want to take it from the church. It has its place. 
but we don't want to be burying our loved ones and not hearing about our loved ones. We want to be able to have a ceremony that's that's focused on the life of the person that has died and not on any establishment or the person that's taking the ceremony. So therefore we have celebrants. They actually started in Australia. Um, and so they are more or less the new craze the last 10, maybe 20 years. Just like you see, you have civil weddings um, and you have people who uh, arrange the wedding ceremony. So it's similar with funerals now. So there's a changing face in funerals, Sophia. It's, it's different. It's more modern. People are becoming more comfortable. It's more hands-on and more glam, if I can use that, um, and more input from the families. Yeah, because, um, I mean, if I'm thinking about, you know, we're talking about a topic that is not really shared or discussed in family homes, well, not in my family home anyway, until an event comes where you have to bury your loved one type of thing. But I was so grateful that you sent me the link for the home goings, the film, um, the film Home Goings, which is directed by a lady called Christine Turner. And I am so glad you sent that because of two things. Similar, because obviously you sent me your bio. And again, we're going to talk about that in a minute. But with this particular individual, Isaiah Owens, he had a passion from young, you know, about burying those who have deceased. And people, his family thought that this is own words, thought that he was a mental case. I was absolutely quite astonished, even with the words that were chosen to use. Yeah. And he said his first funeral was when he took a light to a matchstick and he actually, you know, reenacted the funeral proceedings with stones and, you know, rocks in the movie. I thought it was such a really good insight into black funerals, but I know it's you know, shown in America. I know that us in the UK, we have a different, you know, maybe yeah. version of it, but it was a really good insight into, I'm going to say African-American, because that's what they call them, African-American funerals within the States. It was absolutely yeah. awesome. Really, really, really fascinating. I'm glad you got the chance to, to actually watch that because it does actually give you more of a, it brings you into a wider arena of where we're come from what we're about and how it actually starts because it has to be a calling yeah yeah you yeah. know you cannot wake up one day and say oh I want to be a funeral director or it's just not like that and and, and funerals are to be when I hold workshops can we talk about death uh, and, the, and the workshops are filled with humor they're filled with truth honesty um, and, and we need to get comfortable about facing the inevitable can we talk about death it's very simple so that was a wonderful film um and a couple of weeks ago we was actually involved in another workshop around that film so it's lovely to hear you talk about it like that yes most definitely is because um i think maybe maybe a year ago or something like that i was saying to my mom i need to get my business in order so to speak and I'm glad that I have the relationship I have with my mum where I can discuss about if I go before you, <laughs> you understand, yeah. this is yeah. what I want in place. And there was a wonderful part in the film where um, Isaiah Owens was having a meeting with a lady who they call Red and she wants her hair um, dyed red. 
And he said to her, but she didn't know that he offered this service about dyeing the deceased hair red. And he said to her, you know, what's that dye you got in your hair? And she was so shocked. She said, oh my gosh, it's red on red <laughs> type <Yeah>. of thing. <laughs> and I was like, the whole meeting with regards to preparing for that time, it sort of like takes away the horror of it, I suppose. Because I always say it's inevitable, isn't it, that we that we are born, obviously, and that we are going to that we're going to die type of thing. So I thought that was a remarkable and as well interesting film. And thank you for sharing that. So in a nutshell, um, let's talk through your journey into being a celebrant. Talk us okay. through your journey. Well, my my actual earliest memory of death uh, and it's funny these things come back to you after I was five years old and um loud knocking at the door loud banging at the door and it was my godmother and my auntie who actually lived next door to us ran up the stairs screaming Leroy's dead Leroy's dead and Leroy was her seven-year-old son who died of a heart attack and heart disease and I remember her running into my mum's bedroom screaming, just throwing herself in the chair, screaming, Leroy said, Leroy said, Leroy said, and mum going downstairs to make a cup of tea. But when I look back, mum seemed to be gone for such a long time. I think mum was downstairs consoling herself. Mm. And that was my first memory of her, just being in that chair and me staring at her. And my next memory was being next door and seeing Leroy in his little grey suit laid out. I thought he was on the ironing board because of the easel. The shape of the legs. He was actually on the trestles in his coffin. But that was my memory. And I remember he had an eye slightly open. And my next scene was just being at the graveside with her screaming. And I don't know why mum did it, but I was right in front of her. I was her goddaughter. I was very close to her. And him being put down in the grave. I'll never forget that. So, and and after that, I, I just remember always going to funerals, always going to funerals. In fact, enjoying them. So much in an older age whereby I was critiquing them. That's not a eulogy. That's not a tribute. Why have they faced the coffin that way? And even having a word to the funeral director, you know? And, and what would happen is, on one day, I'd get a phone call. Mum, mum's unwell, can you come? Mum's dead, can you come? Can you help us stress, mum? Just, you know, advances. Can you give a tribute? Can you write a eulogy? Can you help us with this? So I was always involved in some pattern or type of, and then one day it was like four requests in a week and they were getting more and more help us dress mum can you help us paint mums I thought well, hold on a minute I'm going to do this I should be doing this professionally because I'm spending my time running up and down and being a deaf doula which we can talk about uh, another time or later on if you've got time a deaf doula is like an end of life individual that helps you out of life with all your plans similar to what you're talking about death doulas yeah um and then i thought you know what let me just embark on this industry let me just have a go and so what i did i i started looking at training as a funeral director but it was very much a closed shop you either went with a massive organization and went for years and years or and paid loads of money or you just went direct so I thought, you know what, let me just step in here and I embarked upon a celebrant. I thought, well, what is a celebrant? I've never heard of a celebrant. And explained the role to me of what a celebrant was. I thought, okay. 
So when Gloria, someone that we knew, died a couple of years ago, and this bloke turned up in a dodgy suit and started reading her eulogy, and at the time it didn't make sense to me because it didn't ring true of Gloria, I realised he was a celebrant. Because as you say, we're under the illusion that everyone that stands at the front is the reverend, the vicar, the pastor, but no, a celebrant is non-religious. Not a humanist, but non-religious, and will conduct a non-religious ceremony. You start with a blank page, then you can add religion in if you want it. But that's the whole idea that we can have a ceremony focused on the individual the way we want it. And so I embarked on it, I did training. I did a week long residential, which was amazing in Northampton. I was the only black girl in the class, I was the only black person in the class as well. It was brilliant. Um, a lovely group of people and testing, trials, standing on show, talking, doing exams. We did that for a whole week and then the following week I got a phone call to say I passed. I'm now free to be a celebrant, although you don't need to be qualified. There are little nuggets there that kind of refine and enhance the role. Uh, so it's good to have that qualification. That's awesome because it's you're very blessed in terms of having those skills and qualities because not everybody can be a celebrant. You've got to be have you've got to have next level compassion, next level listening skills, and really care, like next level caring skills. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. if I'm thinking about roots into your industry, and and if I was thinking about careers that is one role as a celebrant that was never spoken about as a possible career pathway you know so i'm wow. so happy that you're here so that we can shine a light you know shine a light on people who have the skills and the qualifications you're going to go into that a bit more later on into how you can get into be that role so would you always like, you know, throughout the different types of businesses and roles that you have done, have you always been that person that somebody goes to for advice and listening and, you know, and support? Yeah, um, I wouldn't necessarily say in terms from a professional standpoint, I never went into social worker or counsellor, but in my various jobs, I was always the person in the kitchen or the person at lunchtime or the person after work that Uziel was spent listening to the woes of the world. You know, if ever something went wrong, if we when I went on a residential a couple of years ago, I worked for Billy Graham Institute and um, only part time. And um, we went away on a shoebox. We used to do the operation shoeboxing and there was issues. And do you think you can just come into the room and pray with because I believe this person's persecuting me. I thought, even on a weekend away, I'm being called, you know? But generally in life, yes. Uh, and, and to be honest, one of the roles that we're told not to take on is that of a counsellor. When you go to the house, you don't counsel them. You're not a bereavement counsellor. You're there to organise a funeral. But we all know that emotions come to the fore when people die. And I've gone for an 11 o'clock meeting that's meant to be two and a half hours and I've still been there at six o'clock. I've had to stand in between families fighting. So you need to be able to think on your feet. You've got to have empathy. You've got to have compassion. You've got to have a heart for people and you've got to have an understanding and you have to have a listening ear. Yeah, that's awesome because I went online to see if I can, you know, identify other black celebrants 
you know, and I came across one other um, black celebrant and obviously yourself, but what is, you know, the makeup of the industry? You know, what does it look like in terms of okay. how many black celebrants there are? Well, in terms of, well, if we start with the funeral industry per se, yeah, it's worth 1 billion. I think there are about 4,000 funeral directors. We only have 1% of that market. I think in the UK, there might be 20 black funeral directors, if that. Whereas I can stand on the street corner in one place and I could see three white funeral directors. So we form a very small part of that market, okay? Um, the makeup of black celebrants, I think there's a handful, there might be 10. Lucky if we get to 15, because we're called like a corporation of black celebrants. And the reality is, <clears throat> with the market has become saturated uh, with celebrants, especially since COVID. Well, people often, like when they found they've gone to funerals, they've been asked to give a tribute and they've spoke well. So they've put their celebrant hat on. Oh, I think I can do this. So I'm going to investigate this because everyone said I did well. Even when I did training, a couple of people said that, you know, my father-in-law's funeral and I spoke really well when they said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that has brought a lot more people to the market. You work on a self-employed basis for the funeral directors. So I'll go in and I'll say, hi, you know, my name's Maxine. I'm a civil celebrant and, you know, and it's up to the funeral arranger if they want to give me funerals. I have friends, white friends, who are on like 30 funerals. I mean, 30, a list of 30 funerals over the next couple of weeks, where the black celebrant that I know, I think has only done three in five years. It is a racist industry. It's male dominated, white male dominated. It's very close. And I'll be very honest with you. I thought I understood racism. But coming into this industry, I've understood what the unconscious bias is, how it operates, and how the nicest of the nice funeral arrangers are racist. And you and know, it, and I don't know. Yeah, and it's so unfortunate, and it doesn't even shock me at all. Because um, even when I was going online, you know, looking up how many celebrants, black celebrants there were and whether there's any data with regards to that information. Because if you was to go on the NHS website or .uk website and to drill down on the ethnicity breakdown of doctors and etc., you'd be able to find that information. And it's shocking, you know, it is so shocking. And the unconscious bias would be you going to the funeral director and they not giving you links to funerals that are to be organized, isn't it? That is the unconscious yes, bias. But that's the unconscious to, bias. Yeah, a, a white celebrant over you. Yeah, because they believe, as I think I said to you before, they think you're going to get your tambourine out and turn into Rusty Lee and do a war dance and start speaking in tongues. Because there is this mindset that Blacks do things one way and we do things a different way. So they'll like you. They'll entertain you and they'll love you. And you'll explain to them that I've done Buddhist funerals. I've done Asian, when I say the Asian, Indian funerals. I've done all types of funerals. Not everything's jovial. Not everything's this happy, happy, laughy, laughy character. You know, we know how to adjust. And at the end of the conversation, they'll still say, if we get any black funerals in, we'll let you know. 
I've been told if you tried our South London branch, because they get more, or the Blacks tend to have their own pasta, which quite often, because we, we're relatively new to cremations as, as, as a community, we are more so now cremating our own, but prior to now, we didn't. Um, and you'll find that we know culturally, everyone, whether we go to church or not, has an auntie that knows a pastor. So that limits the role of the celebrant within their own community anyway. So we're left with cremations, black cremations, which are increasing. Uh, but the reality is they do have this mindset and I've been told, oh, the old people around here won't, no, they won't really like you. I'm just telling you the truth, Maxine. However, a black celebrant who is UK born and raised will give me a white funeral and they're the ones that sing the praises the most. The white people love us. So there's that blockage. It's a bit like Asia, um, you know, um, estate agents. They only want one particular type to move into one area and they block you whereby the owner doesn't care as long as they get the money. Uh, and so, so it's really, really difficult. And, and it has been difficult. Even working with the funeral directors as a celebrant, it has been challenging. That, that is the top um, challenging aspect of your role working currently in the um, funeral industry is, you know, dealing with the unconscious bias of those that are operating within the industry. Yeah, because I know the funeral celebrants that I've spoken to, unless they're working for black funeral directors, they, they've given up. Because you're pushing against the goads, you're not getting anywhere. You're not celebrated, you're not wanted. And when you are actually there, the bearers, because remember, I'm talking in my role as a celebrant, not as a funeral director with my own company. As a celebrant, you're self-employed, you turn up alone, and you're met with six white guys. And when you're good, it's almost as though, well, who does she think she is? How long have you been doing this? Did you know the family? And it all stems from racism, which stems from fear. Because the fear is that you're going to go in and we're going to get more of this lot and there'll be, there'll be more than us. As Pharaoh said in Egypt, there'll yeah. be more than yeah. us, you know? Um, and, and that's the reality, it's fear. And even when you've done a real good job, and even when the family phone and say, you know, she was excellent, they still don't call you back. They match, they call it matching. But if you are a good celebrant, other than being having a skill or talking a particular language, speaking a language, any celebrant should be able to conduct a funeral. Agreed. Yeah. yeah. So, so that's the biggest challenge I face is racism and victimization. Mm -mm. What about the next level of the unconscious bias with regards to racism? But what about as a female working within the industry? Has that been a challenge for you? So it's far? very, very difficult. And, and I don't want to make everything about race. But when you're a black woman, you, you have a certain persona. Yeah. Um, and yes, I do think being a female, whether you're black or white in the industry, is not easy. I've got a lady that drives for me sometimes. She's a white lady and, and she's up against the men and knows probably more than them. So she has her own battles. There are times when I want just white uh, pallbearers, female white pallbearers. I use them and, and they're up against it. And you see the guys looking as to say, all right, women carrying coffins. Do you know what I mean? You get asked all sorts of silly questions. You can't carry coffin. You can't do this. You can't do that. Well, can't we? 
So you're going to face that anyway as a woman. As a black woman, it's worse. I've had celebrants see me, so they look at me as to say, where does she come from? Sometimes they come in and they watch the ending of your ceremony. They're coming in with the next one and they're looking at you and you can see them. You can discern and see what they're thinking. And it's fear. And there's so much space for everybody at the end of the day, you know? Oh, yeah, it's death. Yes, it's death. It's guaranteed <laughs> because I always say, you know, that the occupations that deal with childbirth, you're guaranteed a job, all right? You're guaranteed. And there's so many occupations available. And then yeah. on the other side of the spectrum, when you're dealing with death, you're always yeah. going to be in work. Guaranteed yeah. you're going to be born and guaranteed that you're going to die. die. There's space for and the everybody. Tax and the, and the tax man. Yes. <laughs> and, and often when I'm having my insurance, I say one thing, you know, if you're born, you're going to die, but you will pay taxes also. Even if you're on benefit, you will pay taxes in this country. But That's yes. so true. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> I want to highlight um, just to quickly go about your, um, your role, as you said, as an end of life doula. Could you explain yeah. what that is? So as an end of life tutor, I've not taken on that role professionally, but that is something that is really, really becoming more and more of a, I can't even say if it's a trend, it's, it's becoming more of a role in today's society. Because having you made reference to your mum earlier on, what the doula does, the doula takes on that responsibility of planning your end of life. And that does not necessarily mean that you're terminally ill, although statistically they work with the terminally ill. But the doula, will plan your finances, help you plan your funeral, yeah? Just your end of life care. Takes that burden away from your children or your next of kin, does it all for you and will even spend your, the last minutes of your life with you and will act as a celebrant on the day of your funeral. Everything's in place. You understand, they're not the executor of your will unless you want them to be and that's another subject. But that's what the end of life doula does. Just like midwives are doulas that help you into the world, the doula takes you out also. And it's becoming more and more of a role in today's society where people are planning their end of life. They're more, I think people are becoming more and more aware. What with COVID? People are becoming more and more aware of what's going on and what needs to be done. And the unpleasantness when it isn't done. Yes, because you're sometimes left with family wars and rifts and, you know, you know, will going into probate and, you know, the longing out process of all of that. So I think that is a much needed role because we are more conscious, we are more aware and we are in more control of what we want to do when we pass away, isn't it? At the end of the day, yeah. when we die, this is what I want to have in place because maybe people or are they thinking about, I do not want my family to be dealing with this. So I'll just want to plan it all. Is that the mindset? I think generally speaking, and I think also it, it's a case of different cultures and communities deal with death differently. You know, I find like with the Jamaican show, no matter man, when we're dead, make them it. You know, you've got that kind of approach. When we're dead, we're just dead. Not understanding the logistics and the problems that that causes and that your children, not only do they end up with heartache, they end up with less. Because when you go probate, when you die in test state, you die without letter of wishes, all your money goes on the legalities. Yeah? 
Um, so that's one of the reasons. Another one is fear. People just cannot come to terms with the fact that one day they're not going to be here. Do you understand that they're invincible? And so they leave it. You know, so those are the real, well, I find like many of the white communities, either they've got something or they haven't, but it's in place. This is what I want, end of. You know, and I look at the first generation Caribbeans, like my mum, who would have been in her 90s now, she had a little co-op, red book. And when she died, that covered her funeral in its entirety. Um, and that's another subject. That funeral cost £3,500 in 2001. That same funeral today probably would have cost 30000 you know, uh, when I look at the prices. So it's things like that. I think a lot of it is fear, not knowing who to nominate in terms of family, taking order. Should I choose the eldest, the youngest, the middle one? It's going to bring problems. You know, just go and sort your business out. Get someone neutral. Like yourself. Yeah, get a death doula. Someone trustworthy. You know, um, and when your business is done, it's done. You know, one of the things with the death industry, whether you're the co-op, well, the co-op are a high street name. So you've got the co-op, funeral partners and dignity. They're the big boys in the industry. The rest of us are independents, yeah? One thing about the fuel industry is word of mouth. Word of mouth. If I say to you, not one person has walked into my shop on Dagenham Road, Romford, and said, can you do a funeral for me? Not one person. It's all come from social media or people seeing me work. It's organic, yeah? People like to see. So irrespective of someone looks at my charges and says, oh, they're reasonable. They're not the cheapest, but they're cheap enough. All it takes is someone to come along and say to them, well, you know what? We went to a funeral last week and this funeral director was amazing and they'll go with them. I can have a funeral in my hand and someone will come along and say, oh, da -da 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 last week and the family will go. So that's the kind of thing. So my emphasis really is I'm on social media, Maxine Mitchell celebrant. I'm not on Instagram. And in fact, my, my, my celebrant work is actually dying down because I can't do the two. I love the celebrant work more than I love the funeral directing because my my heart and my soul is to organize a funeral and give it to them and present it to the families i absolutely love it but the funeral director is a bigger bit of the pie so if i'm the funeral director normally i get the funeral as a celebrant but in terms of working self-employed for for funeral directors now i don't i can't really manage it i've got a couple of online companies that i work for and and, and some of those jobs are a bit far out um, but that role is dying down, but that's the role that I actually prefer, the celebrant, because it's a wonderful role. Plus, I like speaking and presenting, um, and I'm a tad controlling. <laughs> <laughs> You're not I, uh, the only one. <laughs> I'm a tad controlling, so when they say to me, oh, we want to sing Rock of Ages, I say, why? you know let me give you an alternative you know and I try and talk them into because I know what's going to flow best with the ceremony I know and it's hard to get that into a family who is stuck on one thing but that's the role that I love and yeah and I, I would just love to see more black celebrants because I believe there's room 
even though the market is saturated in celebrants, I believe there's room for young and young black celebrants as well. Yeah. yeah, awesome, awesome. So let's talk about the training. What was, you said you'd done um, um, training and what was it like? How long was it? And what happens after okay. your training? Okay, so what happened was when we went in, if I can remember, before I was, it was really, really strange because I was looking on, on the laptop, looking, 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 what can I do? I want to get into this industry. Saw the celebrator, looked at all the courses um, and I had no money. I remember at the time I had no money and there was this one, there was two. I applied to both of them. It was a Friday night, probably, or a Saturday night. And one of them accepted um, an advanced learner loan, student loan, which you can get online. I think two of them did, but one of them came back to me man, the Monday. Uh, am I allowed to promote? Yes, yes. All ceremonies, they're in Northampton, yeah? And she came back to me and she said, well, we've got a call starting in three weeks. And there is, number one, you've got to apply for your student loan, Maxine. And number two, there are a couple of exercises that you have to take to ensure that you're fit for the course. And I don't know if you're going to be able to do all that groundwork beforehand. I said, leave it with me. I applied on the Monday for the course. It apparently takes weeks. I applied on the Monday. And they won't accept you until they get the funding. That's how it all works. I applied on the Monday and I got the money on the Tuesday. She said, well, this is history. She said, this has never happened before. She said, we're gonna send you out the exercises. So they sent me out a couple of exercises to see if I could do them. And I passed, yeah, written exercises. And one of them, basically, they don't tell you, but a load of information on an individual and you've got to write something about them to read. And actually it was a eulogy. A couple of things like that, workbook exercises. Then they sent me a big workbook that I had to do for like a week and finish that. Similar exercises, uh, looking at different types of funerals, cremations, answering questions. A lot of it is practical stuff, but it was full on for two weeks. And I did that. Then I went and done the residential. And that's where they taught us in more detail uh, about different types of funerals, the role of the celebrant, just how to from writing commas in the right places, how to, you know, how to lift your voice, how to stand, how to apply yourself, you know, how do you deal with grieving families? What if you're called to a Greek funeral? You know, you're not a negotiator or a mediator. Just loads and loads of practical stuff. Um, and at the end of it all, we actually had to go dress up because I was in my head tie, head tie, leggings and trainers all week. Head tie, legging like I was at home. It was the residential, for God's sake. It was all work. So on the day before, we had to dress up, put on our clothes, do yourself up like you were doing a funeral. They didn't recognise. The only reason they recognised me was because I was black, because I, I was the only black person in the whole entire place. But other than that, they couldn't believe it. They said, my God, mate, so you scrub up well. I said, you know what, there's a time and a place. And so we actually had to go to a crematorium and start and be tested, do a ceremony and be tested in front of the class. So what we did was I would meet you, you would meet me, you would tell me about your aunt that had died, I'll tell you about my aunt, and then we'd do each other's funerals. 
yeah so we'd have like a couple of hours of talking like you would and then i would know what poems and i'd write the eulogy and then i'd present it that's what we did and then we were marked on that we were marked on that um reading poems how we project when we read poems how we read poems fantastic stuff but full on full on um we were marked on that and then on the final day we left came home and then a few days later, maybe a week, they phoned us and told us how we got on. And I actually had made loads of errors. I've made loads of errors, but was always going to pass, I was yes. told. Um, silly little errors, silly little errors that I, that I made um, and errors that I make in life. I've always made them silly little errors. She said, well, you're going to pass. She said, just correct it on the paper trail. Um, and, and before we left, she said to me, I'm going to ask you, she said, when you read your eulogy, you brought a lump to my throat the way you delivered that, Maxine. Please do not work. And I remember this, not because of how well I read the eulogy, it's not the accolades don't bother me, but her following words were, the world is going to see you as a celebrant. Please do not just work in your own community like you've just said. The world needs to see Maxine. So I thought when I finished, the world was going to see me so yeah. I thought I was going to register, register the 400 funeral directors. The first time, the first phone call I made, I tried the black ones first. I wasn't thinking about cremation. And he said to me, are you trained? I said, yeah. He said, I've got a funeral for you. My first phone call, I thought, this is amazing. And I went back to the forum and I said to the group, I've got my first funeral. I thought, this is it. I struggled. I promoted my blackness. I had a leaflet made up with me um, doing a ceremony. And that was it. That was the one thing. Because they all spoke to me for like 45 minutes. I can talk forever, but apparently I'm engaging. They all really, really liked me. Um, didn't tell them about my colour. Just sent them my folder. Just sent them my cards and my flyer. Never heard back. I'm telling you, over 400 funeral directors. No, the, the, the first white funeral director that gave me work, I was coming home from shopping. I got a phone call and it was because they wanted a Saturday and a Sunday. They wanted prayers and because there was an open coffin in the front room. So on the Saturday, I go to the house, open coffin, Buddhist family, they were Chinese. They wanted prayers and the coffin was going to be opened. Yeah. Um, and then on the Sunday was a ceremony at the City of London, two days, yeah? That's the only reason I got the call, because celebrants don't view bodies. Not any of my celebrant friends have ever seen a body. And that's why I got that job, because the, their normal celebrants didn't want to do it. And I'd done an outstanding job, and they never called me again. The family even gave me extra money. A celebrant earns, am I allowed to say? Yes, you can. Celebrant earns between the Church of England vicar, I think gets about £190, £200. For every funeral, which is about 15 hours work, a celebrant will get up to 250 £260 for a half hour cremation. But that involves your travelling to and from, your talking to them, your liaison with the media journey and your presentation on the day. So even though you're only there for half an hour, it's quite a lot of work that goes into it. It's up to 250 yeah? Um, and on that day, they gave me another 215 in a little red envelope. They were so pleased with the funeral. But the funeral director didn't call me again. 
And it is all to do with how the funeral industry is made up with the unconscious bias and the racism that is perpetuated throughout, which blocks, you know, talented, inspirational. I can imagine do, you doing a eulogy. I bet it's fire. I bet it's yeah, absolutely it. amazing. Yeah. 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 And, and what it does also block, it stops people from having wonderful funerals because, Sophia, there are times when I've gone to houses, knocked on the door, and their head's on the side. Because they've spoken to me on the phone, they don't know I'm white. Black people know you're black. You can take the little voice, but white people don't. They think, you know, and you knock on the door and I say, make scene, and they go, oh. You know, <laughs> they see that you're, you're black. But by the time you're in there, 10, 15 minutes later, they've forgotten all of that. They're in love with you. And on the day, they turn around and they say, wow, that was something else. That was amazing, you know? White people, they don't care unless they are racist. Racist, yeah. 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 But they don't care. They just want a lovely funeral and they fall in love. And it's about the person. If you can sell, you don't even have to sell yourself. It's all part of your character, your communication skills, your whole being. It's the people. Call the funeral arrangers, the girl or the guy that sits in the office that takes the notes that blocks you. They want a type. And if we don't fit that type, we'll constantly be blocked. We constantly and rejected. You know, on the ceiling. You know, can't break through. Just constantly. No, that's humbling. right. Yeah. I mean, even when I went back to my um, trainers and I said it's just so unfair, because there were times when it was so demoralising. You know, when you're going into the forums and my, my, the, the people that I trained with were nice people and they would say things to me like, I think you need to push a bit more, Maxine. Like, we don't see your face out there. And I think, well, I've been told to hide it. Or, um, oh, it will happen, it will happen. It never ever happened as a celebrant. It never, even in the midst of COVID, you know, phones are ringing. It never ever happened. What happened for me was that I got a friend that was in the co-op and it was an office um, in Barkingside. I'd walked by on several days and I'd been in there and I'd given them my card and they'd never used me. And one day I went by and there was a black girl sitting in the window and I had my head tie on, I had two, I'd just come out of Iceland. And I said, oh, are you the new funeral arranger in there? She said, I'm mobile, but come in and sit down. I said, I'm actually a celebrant. She went, well, I've got a funeral for you. And I thought, wow. So anyway, she spoke to me, whatever, because she was new. This was the first time she had her own office. And we did, like, so many funerals. It was just fantastic. And then word got round that this particular girl's using a black celebrant. Um, she's taking the work. People were coming in and saying, well, I normally work in this office. Why aren't you giving me work? We were getting good reports, and they moved her. But that was the only person from one particular big branch with four letters that gave me work consistently and the thing I've got to say about that Maxine is that you know on the other side of that okay these particular celebrants were always getting the business okay yes. they didn't yes. think and feel about you as a black woman entering to that industry and not being offered work it's only when the money's been taken away from them taken off their plate isn't it they want to make a, a noise about it absolutely astonishing and disgusting it's hard. And hard. when you phone them up i'd use my usp so i'd phone up and i'd say hi there my name's maxine i'm a celebrant do you need any more celebrants i know what they're going to say and they'd say, well, we've got a lot of celebrants and um, 
you know, but we always take new ones and give people a chance. I say, have you got any black ones? After a while, I couldn't take it no more. I say, have you got any black celebrants? And they'd say, oh, I've never thought of that because they've never had to. But it's never, we've never entered their mind. And this is the reality of racism, whereby we are not even considered that there is an an Asian contingency there or a Caribbean one there. Maybe we should promote some black celebrants. There's a wonderful, um, well-known company in East London that I know very well because we've used them for our own. And over the last 20 years, I think as a ripple effect, I've given them over 200 funerals. You go in there any day and you'll see at least four black families in there arranging funerals. We like them. We love them. They do an excellent job. Not any better a job than me, but they are established and um, never used me once for a funeral. That's why I'm just so happy that I'm having a conversation with you about the funeral industry and about your role. And again, it's always about having a conversation so that we can highlight and put a spotlight on your role to encourage the young people, to encourage the young people to think this could be an alternative career and you will get work, set up your own business, networking. Also, is there like an association of black funeral directors? We have one in the making, which is being arranged as we speak now. I was on the panel, but I've withdrawn from that. But there is one in the making and that's what we need. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about the things that you're most proud of. Currently working as a celebrant within the funeral industry. What are the one thing that you're most proud of today? Well, I'm proud of my business, Bronze Ash Funerals. I'm proud of the way because what I've done is I've my sons are involved. So I've got my my sons and my nephews, I've got them involved. And there's a couple of them that don't want to work or want to work doing what they want to do. And I'm trying to explain to them that legacy is is paramount and you need something that's going to be long-term. You're going to need something that's going to be unique and you're going to need something that represents us. And that's what Bronze Ash Funerals does. It represents the black community. And what I am proud of is that I have, try to become a voice in the wilderness that is enhanced, well, exposing the racism in the industry. I'm talking out about it as often to my detriment, I know. Um, But I want to be able to give, and this is a funeral industry full stop. People have not been given a choice. People don't know they have choice. You know, you go into the funeral all sad on forlorn and in your guilt, you've just lost your loved one. And they're saying to you, you've got to have this, 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 and this, it's a business. Funerals are a business. They're there to make money. And especially when you go into the big boys, the funeral arranger is there to make, she has got to make her money. She has got to make money. She's got to hit her target. So when they see us coming, sell them the casket and put a few, put a thousand on top. Up the flowers, 25%. When they see us coming, yeah? And I'm trying to dispel that myth of the vulnerable black family that just wants to bury their dead and spend like hundreds of thousands of pounds. There's no need, yeah? I'm also trying to open up the eyes to an alternative funeral whereby you don't have to have a black curse. You can have a leopard skin one if you want. You can have one with flowers on. If your dad was a milkman, you can have a milk cart, put the coffin on the back. Stop believing that this is Oliver Twist and Charles Dickens and you've got to have the cape and the stick. and the, You don't have to have that. And you saw in the film, The Homecoming, you saw how they led that coffin. You heard that woman say, my mum wanted to dance. I'm dancing. This is funerals. And I want black people to be educated about where we're coming from, why we do the things that we do, 
Why do we have caskets? Do you understand what I'm saying? Why do we embalm? Why do we dress them up in there? There's a reason for everything. And and and, and what George Floyd's funeral did was he, they, it highlighted that even though I'm a criminal or supposed to be a criminal and I'm accused of all these things, in my space, in my space, because of the system and what the system has done to me. And yes, I made some bad choices because of the system, but in my space, yeah, I'm a king, irrespective of what, yeah? I'm no longer a slave crying for the death. I am a king in my $30,000 coffin. I'm dressed like a king. I've got armor bearers to my left to my right, you know, in my space, even in death, I'm going home to glory. I'm going to meet the king. And, and so we need to know why we do the things we do. You know, um, as I said, why we have caskets, we call a phrase, it's, it's called casket sharp. You've got to look sharp in your casket. Why? Do you understand? We were talking about it last week. The different things that we do, the, the, the food, the coming together, the songs. Why do we sing these particular songs? You know, so funerals are no, we're in England as well. This is the UK. So what we've been doing, we've been fed UK style for so long. And I'm trying to say, no, nah, nah, nah. you don't have to have UK style. You can have what you want. Just ask and I'll fix it. And that's why I say I'm not a funeral arranger. I'm a funeral creator. I will create the funeral that you want. And, and, and that's what I, I just love. And as you can hear in my voice, I just talk about it all day long. Okay? They get fed up and they... <laughs> I love it. I love hearing the passion because I can feel the passion coming through, you know, the speakers and everything. And that is, and like, as I said, I never knew about this role ever. So now, once we finish this conversation, I will always have you in mind. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because it is even better to have somebody from your community organizing your funeral of your loved one or for yourself whenever that time will come. And what I loved is that for you to think about it is not what you don't have to accept what is being presented with regards yeah. to Black Hurts, you know, and, you know, the gentleman walking in front with his top hat and everything. It's we it's like I feel as if we haven't been given the opportunity for us to think out of the box. You understand what I'm yeah. saying? It's just being said, this is how a funeral should be. And this is you know, this is what is going to happen type of thing. I never even thought about having, you know, a leopard skin hurts or people dancing or whatever. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because sometimes it yeah. is definitely a time to rejoice if you want that. But I yes. love what you do to ensure that it's, it's individualized, you know, it's a bespoke service, isn't it? It's exactly that, bespoke, yeah, yeah. yeah. Excellent, yeah. So I just want you to share, you know, we're trying to encourage young people, people who, you know, if we think about it, COVID has taken away so many jobs. I mean, the amount of people that are now on furlough. And as you've just said, you know, that even though the funeral industry with regards to being a role as a celebrant is saturated at this time, there's always a space. So what would you do to encourage people, you know, to think about getting into, be trained as a celebrant? What encouraging words would you share? I would say, you know, we've got a lot of people, even my daughter, they do the spoken word. 
and they relish in the spoken words. You know, you look left, right, and so we see that young lady at the inauguration of um, Biden. Yes. You know, doing that wonderful, great orator. So we like to be seen, we like to be heard. So why can't we have those? And, and many of us, you know, you look at the Aretha Franklins and whoever, they all start their, their business in church. Why can't you present yourself, you know, as a writer and an orator for a funeral? Do you understand? Encourage those skills, embrace those skills. And not just as a celebrant, there is so much more. Where are our coffin makers? We need people, where are our young people that can build and make urns and, and paint them the, 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 the pictures of our countries or whatever it is that the person likes? We need people, what about people, them, them girls that can sew and do coffin interiors in flags and all sorts, even graves? You know, where are our people? We're not just all about the live streaming and the singing. There's so much more for us. We need black embalmers. Years ago, we used to look at black people and we used to think, well, what colour are they in the coffin? We need black. We've got so many girls that are called repair and get comfortable with death. There is so much to do. And the role of a celebrant, I would welcome. I'm going to do a taster course because I don't want people to be wasting money unnecessarily. I don't think black people need to be wasting money unnecessarily. I'm going to do an online taster course for celebrants and just explaining the role of the celebrant and what is expected. Millenniums are, are looking differently in, at funerals. They did um, a survey and I think the millenniums are even more comfortable with death than, than my generation because they're thinking about, I'm going to be dressed in my pink coffin, I'm going to have my whatever on, I'm going to have my dark glasses on, you know, uh, and so they're talking about death a lot more. I would welcome them to enter the industry and the reality is they're young now. They can grow old. God spares life, they can grow old in the industry. It's time for us to, to, to have our own. We really need to. I really love that. And I really love that you highlighted the different roles within the funeral industry. It's not just being about a celebrant. You know, you also mentioned about people that make coffins, you know, that also the people that, you know, design the interior of the coffins as well. There's so many different aspects to um, the funeral industry that, yeah, why isn't there any apprenticeships? The government could easily make apprenticeships available for that particular industry because it will never die. You know, you'll always have some form of role within that particular industry. Remember, even on the news, they were talking about how funeral directors are overwhelmed during the coronavirus pandemic, you know. So instead of us being reactionary, let's be forward thinking and planning. So if we know, if we have another pandemic like this again, you know, and we're preparing for the future, why don't we, which is a great idea, is to have apprenticeships within the funeral yeah. industry. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and I'm going to be really, really honest with you, and I'm not shooting myself in the foot there, but it's not rocket science. Oh. The industry is not rocket science. They make it look as though this is some complicated... I think to funeral directors that have been in it for like 40, well, my dad was a funeral, and I think, oh, please. You know, you've got to carry a coffin this way, you've got to carry a coffin that way, your back arch. I look at videos of the Caribbean and Africa, and I just think to myself, in the Caribbean, everyone wants a touch. They don't care how they're dressed. 
everyone just wants to have a part of touching that coffin and you see the men struggling they got a beer in one hand or a spliff and then they're carrying the coffin they drop it the another one picks it up they don't care there is no formality it's just getting the job done and everyone mucking in and that's how we need to you know we need to change our minds i'm fed up of the oliver twist business that we're being dictated to and also us as a community that have been conditioned and brainwashed into thinking you know i was refused a funeral the other day because someone had been to one of my funerals and i had mercedes-benz cars and i thought well yeah that's what the family wanted if you want big limousines we can get we can have big limousines as well it's about giving people choice that's it, good choice. And I think that is just really, really key. Maxine, I can talk to you. I'm going to talk Beja now. I can talk to you. <laughs> hey! But, because you know what? Oh, I, I did a Bajan funeral uh, for someone who you know, um, their father, and they gave me the eulogy to do. And it was a brilliant eulogy, but there were a couple of Bajan lines. And, they, and I was saying, I said the night before, I said, God, I can't do this accent. I can do any other, but I cannot do the Bajan accent. In the morning, the phone call came. Oh, I'll do my dad's eulogy, Maxine. I've been thinking about it. And I thought, yeah. <laughs> so when he had me on his radio program, he said to me, um, Maxine, I'm going to put you to the test now. My dad always used to say this, say it in a Bajan accent. I thought, you're having a laugh, mate. So we'll talk again. And yes. Yes, I'd like to up my Bayesian patois or whatever. <laughs> you know, you know, you know. My dad is from Barbados. My mum's Jamaican. Do you know what I mean? I have to always make sure that I represent both of the islands, you know? <laughs> uh, yes, you must. That's yes. who we are. Yes, yeah. exactly. And I think, you know, the core of this, the message today, when you said the core of who you are, you know, the core of us as a people to ensure that we get the service that we so desire, you know? Yeah. And not ripped off. Yes. Because believe me, the funeral directors have got lists on their wall when they see us coming and it's called a blacklist. Mm. Yeah. And I've been told that by white funeral arrangers, there's blacklists on the wall, you know, charge them this, up this, up that, they'll pay for it. You know, they've been found out on national television. So mm. it's, and I mean, of late September this year, last year, so it's a well-known thing, but still we buy into it because we're brainwashed. So yeah. things have to change. Things definitely have to change and they will. Yeah. And I'm going to say thank you so much to Maxine Edgar from Bronze Ash Funerals. Thank you so much for joining me yeah. today on Employability Matters podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Hey everyone, this is your host, Sophia Lewis, and thank you so much for listening to this episode of Employability Matters, a careers and job-related podcast where we dive into all topics associated with the world of work. Thank you for subscribing. I very much appreciate your support and remember to share with your family and friends. It would be appreciated if you could leave a great review on our YouTube channel, Anchor FM, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. I will be back next week for another great episode. So until then, remember, 
employability matters. <music>